1: Today, we'll be talking with Catherine Mason, author of The Reproduction of Inequality, How Class Shapes the Pregnant Body and Infant Health. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you. How are you? Great. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project.
0: Absolutely. So um, I'm currently an associate professor of sociology and women's and gender studies at Wheaton College. Um, But I actually got started kind of thinking about the issues that I deal with in this book, Um, I think actually as a child. um, I've been interested in bodies and inequality for a really long time. Um, So when I was a kid, um, I remember I felt like kind of an ugly duckling. And I, I think a lot of people have that feeling. Um, I had big, thick glasses. I I hadn't really figured out my style. Um, and then when I was a young teen, I got contacts. And all of a sudden, I, I noticed that people, particularly when I went away to summer camp where I was meeting people for the first time, people were treating me really differently um, or they made more flattering assumptions about me. And in some ways that was nice, but I also really resented it. Um, It just, it felt very shallow. Um, And I think you hear something similar from people who've lost significant amount of weight, um, who often will talk about how they've noticed that like people are nicer to them. People give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, But the only thing that's really changed about them is their appearance. And so it feels like this sort of Pyrrhic victory where you win people's approval, but you feel kind of suspicious of it. So I came into this project um, really interested in thinking about um, kind of bodies in everyday life and and the kinds of judgments we make about people's bodies. Um, And I thought, what better case to use than the case of pregnant women and new mothers? Um, Few groups are more kind of universally scrutinized for what they do with their bodies. Um, So it feels like this sort of perfect case study to see how bodily judgments and inequalities play out because it's so intense in this period.
1: Well, tell us about your methods for your research.
0: Sure. So when I went to do the research, um, I, I wanted to talk to women who were either pregnant at the time or up to five years postpartum. So people who still had pretty recent memory of what it was like being pregnant and giving birth. Um, and I ultimately talked to 70 women who um, And mostly, we were talking about um, changes that they made in caring for their bodies during and after pregnancy. So we had a lot of questions about why they adopted the health and body care habits that they did, what kind of support they got for that through, you know, family and friend networks or, you know, things they were reading or classes they were taking, um, as well as what sort of kind of non-support they got, right? Like what kind of pushback or judgment they received from people about whatever it was they were doing their bodies. Um, and I was especially interested in class, um, And thinking about how the different resources or knowledge that women might bring to this would impact both the actual kind of health choices they made and the levels of support they got for that.
1: Now, in your book, you talked about the stratified embodiment between women and the stratification of women's health. Tell us more.
0: Sure. Um, so one of the concepts that I develop in this book is something I call reproductive body projects. Um, and these are basically the everyday body care practices that women undertake um, to cultivate babies' development, um, both during and after pregnancy, um, by working on their own bodies. So think about like All those different kinds of recommendations that pregnant people face about like things you should eat or not eat or drink or not drink when you're pregnant. Um, Think about all of these expectations that people will read pregnancy books um, and and guides, um, that they'll listen to podcasts about parenting, that they will avoid risky activities. you know, the the decisions that people have to make about um, when it comes time to have a baby, um, you know, will you seek out a medicated childbirth? Are you going to try to have an unmedicated, what some people call natural childbirth? Um, and then after the baby is born, you know, are you going to breastfeed? Are you going to bottle feed? It's this just endless series of choices. Um, and the thing that I'm interested in, you know, when I'm talking about this as a project is that, you um, For a lot of women, this isn't just kind of random decision making, but rather they come at this with a sense of a set of values of um, kind of how they want to relate to their body and what they want these investments in their own health to do for their baby. Um, And basically everybody does this in one form or another, right? Like you have to make choices when you're pregnant and when you have a baby. Um, But even though everybody does this... um, what they do, like the choices they actually make, and especially how they explain their reasons for doing it varies pretty significantly. And so I wanted to understand why. So um, you asked about stratified embodiment. And I would say, um, when we look at reproductive body projects, um, we can see that for pregnant and postpartum women, health is both both stratified and stratifying. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, Basically, these projects both result from social inequality, but they also contribute to social inequality. So when I say that health is stratified and reproductive body projects are stratified, um, what I mean is that people's participation in these projects is shaped by social inequality. So pre-existing differences in education, in socioeconomic status, things like that. um, Those shape what people are likely to do with and for their bodies. Um, So that can be a result of differences in resources. So if you are planning to exclusively breastfeed, right, that might mean that you have the ability to work from home or you have a flexible job or you have paid maternity leave that lets you stay home for a while without losing, you know, losing benefits um, or losing pay so that you can establish a breastfeeding relationship, right? So that choice might be shaped by, um, you know, kind of the t- having the time or money to do it. Um these projects can also be stratified and as, as a result of class um, as a result of differences in knowledge or cultural norms. So, you know, different cultural groups, different communities have different priorities and values when it comes to the, type, the types of um, kind of health practices that are seen as most desirable. So that's how health can get stratified, right, as a result of people's um, group membership and, and socioeconomic status. But I'm also really interested in how these projects are stratifying, that is, how they contribute to social inequality. Um, And here, the idea is that people who adopt healthy lifestyles, and I know we're, you know, this is audio, but just imagine me putting scare quotes around healthy. Um, People who adopt quote unquote healthy lifestyles um, and who perform a devotion to health by talking about and consuming like health behaviors in what is seen as the right way. um, Those people are seen as morally superior to other people who don't approach health in the right way. Um, And so we see, um, you know, those people getting perhaps greater social esteem and valuation for, for being better attuned to health.
1: Now you also looked at cultural capital in your book, Tell the audience more about how you use the term cultural capital.
0: Sure. So. um, um, So this is this is sort of how I'm thinking about the role of class in these projects. when we talk about class, um, we're really talking about power and resources, right? Or at least that's when I'm talking about class, I'm really interested in how that shapes power and resources. So who in society has more power to get the things they want or to shape the world in ways that benefit them and people like them, right? So, um, you know, are you, you know, if, if you have um, a lot of cultural power, um, and you're part of a particular ethnic group or a religious group or a group that has a certain level of education, you might be able to set things up where society highly values people who have those characteristics. Um, so you appear as more as, as better or more rightfully um, in a position of power. So so that's sort of class broadly, right? This power to um, get the things you want or shape the world to benefit yourself and people like you. Um, the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu describes class privilege as coming from different forms of what he calls capital. Um, right. So if you have class privilege, you have more capital. Um And the first form of this is the one that's most familiar, economic capital. Um, Economic capital is what you have, right? So money, property, um, things that could be easily exchanged for money. Um, So people who have money, like that's a form of power, right? The ability to get the things you want um, or shape the world in a way that kind of better fits you. Um, In addition to economic capital, Bourdieu talks about social capital, which is um, if economic capital is what you have, social capital is who you know, right? So that refers to valuable relationships that can help you get ahead or make things go your way. Um, And then cultural capital is the third form, which I'm really interested in. Um, If social capital is who you know... Cultural capital is what you know, um, and that refers to having possession of highly valued knowledge and tastes. It's sort of a way to signal that you belong, that you're part of, you know, the the elite or or a highly valued group. Um, So Bourdieu's main example of cultural capital is education. Um, So he says, right, like upper class people have more opportunities to pursue higher education, to get exposure to enriching cultural um, activities like theater and music and so on. But as a society... We don't necessarily look at education and say, "Oh, that's privilege." Instead, we're used to thinking about education as merit, right? We say, "Oh, someone who has a degree, someone who's very cultured, like that's someone who's worked hard to attain that degree, someone who has cultivated um, these these tastes, these um, the you know the ability to appreciate avant-garde film, whatever." Um, And so, as a result, we give more respect and status to people who are highly educated, who have who have high amounts of this like valuable cultural capital. Um, Even though, as sociologists know, there are real class differences in access to education and access to that knowledge. But basically, education kind of serves as like money laundering, right? It launders socioeconomic privilege so that. Class inequality comes to be seen as legitimate, right? So instead of being like, oh, this person unfairly inherited all of this money, we can sort of look at that and say, oh, they didn't earn that. Um, if that person has gone to a really expensive college and, you know, has, has gotten an education, we can look at them and say, oh, that person is very deserving. Okay, so what does this have to do with mothers and their bodies? Um I argue that people who have learned to care for care for and talk about their bodies in culturally valued ways um, are people who have the ability to be seen as better or more worthy of respect, Um, right? Like if you are a person who is seen as like making good choices for your body, um, we're you know, instead of seeing that as a function of like, oh, you probably have the time and resources to do that thing, we're more likely to say, oh, look at this person who has the willpower to, you know, compete in a triathlon, the willpower to um, eat plenty of fiber and stay hydrated, whatever, right? Like we look at people's health habits and we see that as a function of merit rather than, oh, this person has the resources to perform these things. Um, so, so that's where I think about sort of cultural capital coming into people's um, body care practices. That they have these um, kind of culturally recognizable and valuable habits um, that then get we, get read by other people as being kind of virtuous or morally good.
1: Now, you talk about class privilege, people, and mothers. Um, what did you find concerning? The class privileged mothers
0: sure so i will say and i know we're going to talk more about kind of sampling but um i had really three groups that i focused on in this um so i i talked to um kind of class privileged um women so these were women who had um i have a sort of a shorthand for them i call them um high education high income so people who had completed four years of college and who had who had at least a bachelor's degree um and who were also um usually in the top two kind of income quintiles in the united states so we would see them as middle or upper class Um, I also looked at a a significant number of poor and working class people who did not have a college degree and whose incomes, household incomes would place them in like the bottom two quintiles. Um, And the the third group that I can talk more about later is um, a mixed class group who had either high education and low income or low education and high income. Um, And so... The thing about um, class privileged mothers um, is so in a lot of ways, this was the group that felt most familiar to me, right? Like I am someone who grew up middle-class I'm, you know, an educated professional. So, um, you know, culturally, I was connecting a lot more with some of the things that these, um, that these respondents were talking about. Um, And some, just some of the things that I noticed with this group was that they were really um, really good at communicating about themselves as experts um, and as, as like highly knowledgeable and dedicated to their own health and their children's health. So I would ask them questions about, um, you know, like, tell me what you changed when you were pregnant. And I would get these, you know, dissertations on, um, you know, Oh, like I, I read the journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. I, you know, I, um, I, I, I like shopped around for the best midwife. I, or some people would say like, I actually, I'm already a super healthy person. So I just tweaked a couple of things. Um, so they, they were so ready to talk at length about the, um, the many kind of intentional choices that they made for their health and for their child's development. Um, and you know, which was interesting to me because I was thinking like, I'm kind of the audience for these stories, but it's clear that you have some practice talking about this. Like this isn't the first time that you've, you know, kind of defended or accounted for all of the things you're doing for your child. Um, and so that, kind of thinking of those as narratives that these women had practiced telling was really interesting. And I was wondering about like, why, like, why do they do this? Why, like, what is at stake in having these like really cohesive narratives about themselves as these kind of health focused, um, moms, um, a lot of them would, would link it to identity. Um, so when I asked them about the, you know, the, the projects that they took on when they were pregnant, um, you know, some women would talk about this in terms of, um, you know, like an athletic identity. So I had one woman who was like, oh, I always assumed I would have a natural childbirth that I, you know, that I wouldn't have, um, you know, I wouldn't have an epidural, I wouldn't have induction, whatever. Um, because like, I run triathlons, I'm an athlete, I'm tough, I can do this. And so they linked the things that they were doing, for their child's health, presumably, to their own kind of pre-existing identities, they were sort of cultivating this this narrative of themselves and who they were through these projects. Um, other women would talk about their professional identities. This woman was like, "Well, I'm a scientist. I'm a researcher. So um, when there's like an issue with my own health or my child's health, like I go to the literature. I read up. I you know I compare sources, um, and that's how I make decisions." Um, And so, so what I got from kind of middle and upper class women was these really kind of well-developed and sounded like also like highly time-consuming projects and practices that they were undertaking to try to give their child the best start in life.
1: Well, you talk with women from San Francisco and the Northern region of Florida. Did you find many similarities between the women and their hope for the future for their children?
0: Um, you know, I, I didn't necessarily expect to, so I started out my research in the San Francisco Bay area and I was, I was thinking, you know, this, like I'm getting some really interesting answers from people, but you know, when you're looking at the San Francisco Bay area, it has a real reputation, um, you know, politically, culturally as being this sort of crunchy new agey, um, you know, liberal, multi-ethnic area. And I was like, I don't know how much, like I'm getting a lot of interesting answers about people's kind of health values, but I don't know how much that's going to be representative of like other parts of the U.S. Um, and so... I I ended up deciding to have a comparison case and I went to um, kind of rural Northern Florida. So I had like urban San Francisco Bay area, rural Northern Florida. This is kind of close to Georgia. Um, this is not Miami, right? This is very much like um, in, in a place with like boiled peanuts and alligators and swamps um, uh, and, and lots of football. <laughs> and So I I expected that there would be kind of significant differences in food traditions. Um, You know, politically, these are different places. Um, I would say it was different when I did my research than now, right? Like Florida and California did not seem nearly so politically polarized at the time as they do today. Um, But I, I was expecting there to be differences. And one of the big surprises that I found was that they were really similar. Like, I had expected I would be comparing the two states, um, but it ended up just not making sense to do that throughout the book because, um, across both states, um, you know, everybody, you know, I, am going to talk about this as, um, as like, what, what are some of the things, what are some of the things that these women are trying to do with their body projects and the work they're investing in their children? But for the most part, they weren't I, you know, I talk about the effects of those projects, but they really, for the most part, weren't describing, you know, they didn't have these sort of calculating motives for why they were, you know, investing in their child's health, you know, for saying like, oh, I want my kid to get ahead or what, you know, whatever. Um, They just, they love their kids. And they were like, I want to give, everybody said, I want to give my kid the best start in life. Um, I want to make choices that will um, that will keep them healthy, that will keep them comfortable. Um, I want to model good behavior and like healthy habits for my kids so that they can learn those things for when they're a grown up. Um, so that was really similar across these two regions. Um, I would say the differences you know, came, came less about region and were more having to do with, um, kind of how people enacted those values of wanting to give their kid the best start in life. Um, not by region, but much more by, um, I would say class and to some extent, um, race and ethnicity too.
1: Now tell us about how you recruited the women and your participation observation.
0: Sure. Um, so My point of entry was I was really fortunate to find some um, folks who were um, in the Women, Infants, and Children program. So, you know, this is a a federal um, supplemental nutrition program that um, provides um, kind of supplemental nutrition. So, vouchers for um, healthy and kind of nutritious foods, sometimes infant formula for people who are pregnant and postpartum, as well as children up to age five. Um, and so I was I was really fortunate to have access to some offices of um, the WIC program in both California and Florida, and I was able to go in and observe the work that um, staff were doing with low income families. Um, so if you don't know much about WIC, um, you know it provides vouchers, but unlike um, you know food stamps, uh, you know SNAP um, and some other programs. It's not just the kind of financial benefit, but they actually do a lot of work around um, kind of nutrition education, um, prenatal education, nutrition education. Um, and so I was really interested to see what kinds of messaging women were getting about like what they should be doing with their bodies. Um, and so I got to sit in on both kind of one-on-one counseling sessions that um WIC nutritionists would do with clients, as well as in some cases, group nutrition uh, and group, group counseling sessions. I remember a really powerful when I got to where it was a group of women who were probably seven or eight months pregnant. And um, it was a class with a lactation consultant showing them, showing them kind of the nuts and bolts of breastfeeding. And it, it felt like a very special and privileged place to be as these women were about to embark on um, this very big new chapter in their lives. Um, so for lower income women, right, because WIC is for um, uh, families up to um, 185% of the poverty line. So it's um, it's limited to folks who are seen as lower income. Um, so I, I attended these groups and I attended these sessions. Um, I also kind of put out a call to women who were coming through the offices on those days um, to ask if any of them would meet me outside of WIC for interviews. Um, and and that was how I ended up getting most of my low-income um, interviews. Um, but obviously, this wasn't where I was getting middle and upper-class women. Um, so for those, um, in the two places where I, I was doing my research, I put out calls to local, you know, um, kind of parenting Facebook groups um Uh, Each place had local listservs that were really active, where I advertised my research. Um, And I also got got a chance to do some participant observation at um, kind of maternity related group classes. So I attended a meeting of Um, La Leche League, right, which is a um, which is an an organization that supports um, breastfeeding parents um, and 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 kind of teaches them how to do it and offers support. Um, So I attended a La Leche League meeting. I went to a baby boot camp workout class, which was kind of postpartum fitness. I will tell you those moms were in really good shape and it was really hard to keep up with them. Um, even as they were pushing strollers, you know, they were jogging around a park and I was panting to keep up. Um, and, and so that was how I met a lot of the, um, middle and upper class women in my study. Um, and I mentioned, sorry. Um, I would say, so I had these two places I was recruiting. So most of the folks I was getting through parenting listservs were middle and upper class most of the people I was getting through WIC were poor and working class, but I did start developing, um, especially once I went through kind of who had actually done interviews with me, I realized that there were people who didn't fit neatly into either of these two class groupings. Um, so that included highly educated women who were in WIC. Um, so often people, you know, people who had a college degree or a graduate degree, but for whatever reason were low income. Um, as well as some folks who were from maybe a working class background, they hadn't gone to college, um, but they had done really well. They had like a family business and they had done really well. And so economically they were, um, they were doing better even as they didn't have that high level of education. Um, and I will say this mixed class group ended up being enormously helpful to me um, because as I was analyzing my findings to talk about um you know, how does class matter? Um, Sometimes it's a question of resources, right? Like who has, like who can afford to do a certain thing? Um, And sometimes, you know, these differences are about culture and knowledge. Um, So what do people know about, you know, if, if you are highly educated, if you grew up middle or upper class, you might have those middle and upper class cultural norms, even if you don't have a lot of money. And so this mixed class group really helped me kind of suss that out and figure out how class was coming to matter when I was looking at class differences
1: in behaviors. Now you talked about the average age of pregnancies. What did you find? Mm.
0: So what I would say, one of the other things that was, you know, so, so there were a number of differences between my kind of upper and lower class groups. Um, So you know, I argue that class itself really mattered, but there were also a lot of differences between them. Um, so the high education, high income women um, were usually in their early 30s, about you know an average of about age 31 when they had their first child. Um, and that age really mattered because at the time they were becoming moms, um, basically all of the women in that part of the sample were married. Um, they weren't living with extended families. They were living in single family households. Um, many of them had um, established professional careers and identities um, before becoming moms, and that really informed how they came to um, kind of motherhood and, and their identity as moms. Um, in contrast, uh, the the lower education, low income women um, were usually closer to twenty one, so about ten years younger um, when they had their first child. I interviewed a number of women who were still in their teens, um, and these women were usually unmarried. A couple were married, but most were not. Um, Some of them were partnered or, and cohabiting with um, a partner, even if they weren't married. Um, But also a lot of them were single um, and they lived with their own mothers and extended family, um, which for them was both, you know, kind of a mixed blessing, right? It it, um, provided them with a lot of kind of live in support, um, the ability to pool resources, um, have their mother or their sister or their aunt around to help out with childcare, um, But it also meant, um, you know, that it was often harder for them to sort of differentiate themselves from their own moms and to figure out how they wanted to be parents themselves. That It, it, it often felt that they had a lot of kind of family scrutiny um, as they were learning how to be moms and what that meant.
1: Would you like to tell us any more about the the doing of health, the dieting, nutrition and risk avoidance? Yeah. Um,
0: so one of one of the kind of big questions for me throughout this project um, has been, you know, so I, I came into this. Um, y- let's see. How do I say this? Like um, so. I talk about doing health, Um, that's not the same thing as being healthy. Um, So before I I said I was using scare quotes when I said health, Um, I do that a lot here because um, I think, you know, Certainly, in the interviews I was doing, but also in kind of everyday life, we use health as a stand-in for a lot of different things, right? So you might say, "Oh, someone so and so looks really healthy," when what you mean is that they look thin, right? Um, even if the way that they got thin is not particularly healthy. Um, you know, we 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 talk about health as this sort of moral good, um, but. A lot of the time, like, we really don't know what people's health is, right? Like, unless we're their doctor, we probably don't know that much about their health. Um, and so I use the phrase doing health as opposed to health or being healthy to emphasize that, like, doing health is about a performance. It's about acting in ways that other people will perceive as healthful um, and as kind of morally good. Um We're in a society, we live in a society that places a strong moral emphasis on optimizing health. So think about all the moral language that you hear around diet and exercise, right? So someone who's having a piece of chocolate cake will talk about how, like, oh, I'm being bad. Um, This is a guilty pleasure. I'm having a cheat day, right? Like, think about all the shame that. (laughs) that shows up in the language around like eating this pleasurable piece of food, right? That you're bad or guilty or cheating. Um, We, we admire people who we, we perceive to be like taking care of themselves and we pity people who are letting themselves go, or we might even look down on them. And so regardless of whether someone is actually in good health, doing health is the performance of actions that we see as healthy. Um, And so, you know, as I am going to talk about some of the some examples of women that I spoke to, um, but you know, these I will say that these women, um, I think, were aware of this duality that they um, both really wanted their themselves and their children to actually be healthy, right? They they wanted good health for their children. Like, what parent wouldn't want that? Um, but they also were keenly aware of being observed by others um, and, and how their actions would look to other people, how their choices would look to other people. Um, and so doing health is this action where people are kind of making choices about their bodies and health with the knowledge that they're being watched,
1: Now, tell us some of the stories about the women you interviewed that would help us understand this class difference.
0: Sure. Um, So I was saying before um, how women are kind of aware that they're being watched. Um, I think a great example of this um, is, so there was this woman I spoke to in California. Her name was Luz. Um, She was an immigrant um, living in California. um, And she Um, She had, she was fleeing a a domestic violence situation. So she had, she had a lot of kids um, and they had spent basically the last year in, um, in a variety of shelters, like domestic violence shelters. Um, She had recently gotten into um, public housing that was heavily subsidized so that she would have hopefully some more stability for her family. Um, But she described it as, as being a, a pretty kind of traumatic, difficult year for her family. Um, and as I, you know, she was sort of telling me this story and she says, you know, um, so I have a two-year-old son, um, and he is still using a pacifier. Um, and she said, listen, I know, like, I know that I'm supposed to have weaned him off the pacifier. You know, there's like some research that suggests that extended pacifier use can affect how your teeth grow. Right. So like, it's, it's not supposed to be super great for your teeth to use a pacifier for a long period of time. But she says like, listen, the last year has been traumatic. The pacifier helps my kid feel okay. Um, He's going to need therapy. Like this has been terrible for him. And like, I know that giving him this pacifier, letting him keep his pacifier is, um, is like is the right choice for him right it, it's comfort for him but every time they went to the wick office she would take the the pacifier away and hide it and i said well you know don't you feel like you know you have good reasons for your son using a pacifier and she's like yeah but you know at WIC, like i don't i don't want to get into that with them i don't want to deal with a lecture about how my kid needs to be off of a of pacifier it's not tod- you know it's it's not therapy i don't want to like I don't want to tell them all my business. Um, so she just basically avoided the topic. She knew she was going to be scrutinized. She knew what people were going to say and just tried to kind of, kind of head that off by, by basically just like hiding this thing, right? Hiding this thing that she was doing. Um, uh, uh, in contrast, so, so, right. So Luz was um, very much kind of poor. I think I would say she had like basically no income, Um contrast this to another woman I spoke to um, who I call Britta, who was um, a white kind of middle, upper middle class woman um, who told me about what she did when she was pregnant. Um, And she was classified as, I can't remember, overweight or obese. Um, But basically her doctor started trying to talk to her about her weight and saying, you know, like in pregnancy, it's really important that you manage your weight, blah, 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 blah. And she basically like, stopped him in his tracks and said, um, she said, you know that BMI is bullshit, right? And she proceeded to just kind of like lecture her doctor about how, you know, the history of the body mass index and and why it is not a good measure of health. And she was like, and anyway, it doesn't, you know, maybe it's useful for other people, but it's not good for me because like, I know what the number on the scale says, but you have to understand like my blood work shows that I'm in really good health and I hike every day. So that scale has nothing to do with me. And I want you to treat me as an individual. Um, And, you know, hearing her talk about this, I was struck by how, like, how much confidence she had in basically being able to speak to her healthcare provider as an equal, um, not as this authority figure who she had to just obey, but instead to kind of push back and say, no, I demand that you um, address me as like an individual and, and kind of personalize your care for me. I don't want you to just treat me by the numbers. Um, and I think about, you know, Luz and Britta's stories I think is illustrating how women in different classes responded, like they all faced this surveillance, um, but middle and upper class women often had like the language, the education um, to be able to claim expertise and to sort of claim that, that they were good mothers. So if, if they were facing this surveillance, they would more often respond directly and say, no, I'm making good choices. Let me tell you about why I'm, I actually am healthy. Poor and working class women, I think, sometimes felt disempowered in these in these kinds of interactions with health authorities. And so, even when they felt confident in themselves that they were making a jo- good choice for their child, um, they didn't really feel empowered to um, kind of confront healthcare providers and health authorities. And instead, tried to just kind of avoid the topic. Or, you know, they would listen to what the healthcare provider was saying, and then they would go do the thing that they believed was right.
1: Now, what is the overall message you want to leave the audience with once they finish reading your book?
0: Um, So I would say I think there are two takeaways, right? So a lot of the time when we talk about health policy in the United States, um, so often we look at the health problems that low-income communities face. And we say, if only we could make, especially when we're looking at like health habits and, and lifestyles, and we often say, if only we could make, you know, poor and working class folks, like do the same th- things that middle class folks do. If, if we could just get them to act more like middle and upper class people, they would be healthy. Um, so it's this very kind of individual behavior, uh, you know, kind of individual determinants of health um, approach. and. You know, I'm a sociologist, so I think that's probably not the most helpful approach, anyway. But in response to this, you know, this sort of theory that basically to make low-income people healthier, we have to make them act more like middle and upper-class people, I would say two things. Um, first. A lot of the education that I saw being targeted at low-income folks was like, well, we know that you don't have very much time and you don't have a lot of money, but like, here's how to here's how to cook something healthy on a budget. Um, and a lot of it was, a lot of the advice was sort of, here's how you can do more with less. Like, here's how you budget. Here's how, like we know you're busy and you're working two jobs, but take the stairs instead of the elevator, right? Like um, try to make these small choice, these small changes. Um, and that kind of advice to me just really misses the point. And I look at like, The kinds of healthy behaviors that middle and upper class women were engaging in were hugely time consuming, resource consuming, right? Like they had these supportive relationships with their healthcare providers, in part because they had good insurance and the ability to shop around and find a healthcare provider who supported the way they want to do things. Um, So if we want poor and working class people to do health more like middle-class people, we need to give them the same resources that middle-class people have access to. Good income, um, you know, disposable income, I'm um, sorry, good health care, disposable income, um, and some leisure time, right? So that's how we make poor and working-class people act like middle-class people. Um, but the other th- kind of Maybe the the harder one that I would say um, I would suggest is I actually think we need to make middle class moms act less like middle class moms. Um, so many of my middle and upper class respondents talked to me about, you know, as they were talking about all the time and energy they invested in these reproductive body projects, I was floored by how many of them described histories of eating disorders, um, right? This was the result of their becoming really hyper fixated on food and on their bodies. Um, When I asked them about what they did with their, you know, to kind of help out with their kids' health, um, they felt anxious and competitive. They worried that they weren't doing enough. Um, I had women who breastfed, who like their baby weaned before a year. And they were like, I felt like I was failing my baby. I had to go to therapy even if their kid turned out fine. Um, and it's fine, right? If if your baby weans at eight months versus 12 months, like they're going to be fine. Um, but they felt so much anxiety and guilt about this. Um, the other thing that we didn't talk about much, but you know, when you had these middle and upper class women taking on these reproductive body projects, it became a source of enormous gender inequality in their relationships, right? Like, like they were putting in all this extra energy into like optimizing their child's health, um, which contributed to a real imbalance in childcare time and energy relative to their male partners. I was only looking at straight couples. So my second suggestion is, I think, I actually think that Middle and upper class women could learn something from the lower income moms who, a lot of times, were sort of strategic about saying, like, "I'm not going to spend all of my time thinking about my kid's body and their health. I'm going to focus on what seemed to be, you know, the most important ways I can invest, and then spend time on other things like pursuing a job or um, finding, you know, stable housing." and i think that there's something that middle and upper class women could learn from um from that
1: well i've taken up enough of your time can you tell us the next project you'll be working on
0: absolutely so where i leave off in the book is that um i have i have questions about what happens to these kids when they grow up i have i have some ideas about what i think happens but one of the things that that i look at in the book is how um A lot of these women talk about what they hope for their children in the future. Like, so if I'm investing in my child's health, if I'm modeling like exercising regularly or um, reading nutrition labels, or you know whatever it is, right? If I'm modeling these things, they're hoping that that's going to benefit their child in some way in the future. Um, And so I'm really curious about like, will these lessons they learned in childhood make a difference in their adult lives? And so, my next project, which I'm just getting started on, um, is going to be about looking at bodies in the workplace. So, asking what kinds of benefits might come, if any, um, from having the right kinds of bodies or body care habits. So, you know, do do the things that you learn about nutrition and exercise and and engaging with medicine. Um, do those matter for your status, for your professional success, um, et cetera, when you grow up. So I don't know the answer to that yet, but I'm, I'm really excited to find out.
1: Well, we'll be looking forward to that project. Again, we've been talking with Catherine Mason, the author of the reproduction of inequality, how class shapes the pregnant body and infant health. Thank you for being on the program.